It's 2007. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is a politician from Florida. She's a rising star Democrat who's finally made it to the big leagues. And she's in her second year as a congresswoman when she hears the words. You have breast cancer. What I always compare it to is one day you're the picture of health and the next day it's like having an anvil dropped on your chest. Let's back up. So Debbie is 41 and she recently got her first ever mammogram. And in that mammogram, it showed no evidence of cancer, but it did show calcifications. Calcifications are little deposits of calcium in your breasts. They're pretty common and often nothing to worry about. But it's important to keep an eye on them because they can sometimes be an early sign of cancer. These calcifications worry Debbie, so she starts keeping an eye on her breasts. That's really what prompted me to do a self-exam a few months after my first mammogram. So thankfully, I knew what was normal for me, so I knew when something felt different. And that's when Debbie learns that she has breast cancer. But it's early stage, meaning that is treatable. She also gets genetic testing. To see whether I had a genetic predisposition to having breast cancer. And when I did that, it turned out that I was BRCA2 positive. So BRCA1 and 2 are genes. Everyone's got two copies of them. One you get from your mom and one you get from your dad. These genes help prevent certain kinds of cancers. But Debbie learns that she's inherited a mutated BRCA2 gene, which is more common in Ashkenazi Jewish women like Debbie. That may be five times more likely to have breast cancer and a recurrence of breast cancer. She also finds out she's at higher risk of developing ovarian cancer. It's a wake-up call. You are essentially suddenly faced with your you know, life and your mortality. Everything else proceeds in the background. And so Debbie begins her treatments. She gets everything done when Congress is in recess. She does not miss a single day of work. We decided not to share it with really anybody that didn't absolutely need to know. And I went through seven surgeries over 15 months and a lot of physical and personal stress. Until one day, she finally rings the bell. She's in remission and Debbie is ready to move on. But then, in 2009, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force changes their guidelines for breast cancer screenings. They say that women under 50 do not need regular mammograms. I mean, I can't wrap my mind around the idea that had I not been able to get that mammogram, then I wouldn't have learned any of this and might have also ended up as an ovarian cancer patient or been dead, uh, frankly. So she starts doing some research. And she learns that young women are very often dismissed when they present to a healthcare provider with a problem with their breast because most healthcare providers just think, oh, you know, young women don't get breast cancer. It's probably nothing. Debbie also finds out that this guidance has basically become national healthcare policy. So there are doctors across the country who are following this guideline even when it makes no sense to. That was going to likely drive insurance companies to not cover mammograms for that age cohort. We found that even though over those many years, the death rate for breast cancer had gone down, it had not gone down for young women. 
In fact, young women were more likely to die than older women of a later stage breast cancer because young women, you know, often think they're invincible. They're not thinking that they can get breast cancer and they're not educated to pay attention to their breast health or they were dismissed by doctors. Who is more likely to be dismissed? Black women. Younger women living with late-stage breast cancer are more often Black. Now that Debbie knows better, she is laser-focused on doing something about all these disparities. I wanted to make sure that I could use my platform as a federal lawmaker to be able to help identify where are the gaps, what's the void that exists, and how can I help fill it? And this is where I come in. I first met Debbie in 2009. I was at an event that was a women's empowerment event, and Debbie was talking about her commitment to giving back to the community while being a mom, working in D.C., and having a family at home. After the talk, I went to say hi to her and say who I was and share about Tiger Lily and what I did. As I spoke to her, Debbie asked me to stop talking and said, come to my office. And so one day after work, I got my daughter from school and we drove into D.C. to meet Debbie and her staff. When I went to her office, the sun was setting. It was myself and my daughter, Noelle, and Debbie was surrounded by a few members of her staff. So I began telling Debbie about my story and about what I'd been through as a young woman living with breast cancer and what it had been like to have to fight for screenings and fight for treatment and navigating cancer and all the barriers that I faced being a young woman and a black woman. Debbie began getting pretty emotional. She said, I'm going to tell you something that no one else knows. I think at the time only her family knew and her staff knew and the Oval Office knew. But she said, I've had breast cancer too. And she said, whatever you want to do, I'm going to help you. We immediately connected. It seemed like the entire world disappeared. And we began to talk about the work we wanted to do to ensure that women who are younger had education and access and resources. There's a Yiddish expression called besheret. It was meant to be. You know, when I began Tiger Lily and began this work, there were these huge institutions that didn't really listen to women who looked like me, who were young and who were Black. I was still working full-time, single-parenting my daughter and building Tiger Lily while on my lunch breaks, in the mornings, late nights, weekends, evenings. And so when I met Debbie, to have her ask me my ideas, she really showed me what my power was and what power I had to use my voice for change. Such a powerful thing in terms of how we view allyship. It's not about position or status. It's really about seeing people eye to eye, heart to heart, soul to soul and realizing that we all are human beings and we can all make an impact in this world, in this space. She was part of the roundtable group that I put together of organizations that focus on young women and breast cancer. And then we developed the legislation that I decided to introduce. The Education and Awareness Requires Learning Young Act. Also known as the Early Act. It focused on creating a national education and awareness campaign targeting young women at higher risk and letting them know about the specific threats and warning signs that can lead to early detection, diagnosis, and survival. We also realized that these organizations need grant funding. Yes, we really did need the funding, and we still do. They need funding because, honestly, a lot of the mainstream cancer community is not paying attention to this issue when it comes to younger women and women at higher risk. These groups are more in need of resources 
so they can target those resources towards young women and and higher risk women. So at first, we think, who wouldn't want this bill to pass? But there's some pushback. I was surprised a lot of it came from within the breast cancer community. Breast cancer isn't as common in young women. And so in their opinion, it's not worth spending time, money, or resources on. They also felt that promoting breast self-exams would make people anxious, that it would lead to too many unnecessary tests. Because some of these breast cancers in younger women, in their words, will never amount to anything life-threatening. Or that, you know, a lot of the lumps and bumps that are found by younger women turn out to be benign. It was dismissive. It was a very dismissive attitude, and it was one that no question would result in more deaths of younger women. Unnecessary death. Unnecessary death is worse than unnecessary biopsies. That's why we proceeded and pushed so hard to make sure that we could make this law. At the end of the day, we got enough support. We had a coalition of 40 organizations, including some of the biggest names in the cancer awareness space. We had been able to put the issue of young women's breast cancer on the radar of my colleagues. And so the outrage about the recommendation for women between 40 and 50 not needing to get a mammogram was palpable. And it made it so that it was possible for us to stop that in its tracks as a result of how much attention we were able to have focus on young women's breast cancer and women at higher risk. So in 2010, after all our hard work, the early act is passed. Well, it passed as part of the Affordable Care Act. So I had a pretty, uh, a huge feeling of elation. Debbie Stafford called me right away. I was in the airport going to a meeting and I just felt like I had to sit down crying. It was a very reverent moment for me, but it also had been a fight. We knew that what we were doing was going to be groundbreaking. That could only have been achieved through legislation because you can see with the pushback that we received that young women's breast health wasn't prioritized and wasn't going to be unless the law required that it be. But it's also not like the early act passed and everything was solved. We've been lobbying Congress for years since. And of course, I love talking about Tiger Lily, but we're not the only ones fighting for equitable care in Congress. Our friend Sonia Negley at Metaviver has been a powerful advocate when it comes to policy, like the Metastatic Breast Cancer Access to Care Act. A lot of people, when they're diagnosed with a terminal disease, metastatic breast cancer being one, the treatment is such, especially initially, that you can't work, right? So most people retire and they go on social security disability. So you can get social security disability fast-tracked is what they call it. And so in about five months, you can have your social security disability. So even though you can get SSDI in about five months, Medicare takes two years. If you can't work, you lose your insurance. If you lose your insurance, you need Medicare. But you got to wait two years. Most MBC patients don't have two years to wait. Most people die before they get it. So we're trying to make 
Medicare fast-tracked for those people who have a terminal disease as well. After the break, we talk money and health insurance. For MBC patients, insurance coverage can mean life or death. MBC patient Michelle Lamoureux is a middle school teacher, and even with insurance coverage... Everything's a battle. I have triple negative, which is a rare form of breast cancer. Remember, triple negative breast cancer is harder to treat. So my doctor wanted to put me onto a chemo drug that she had heard a lot of good things about. And because of my triple negative status, my options are limited from the beginning anyway. So my insurance rejected it because they were like, it's not one of our frontline go-to medications because it hadn't been really out for that long. So it wasn't something that they had approved. And I was going crazy. She's like, seriously? My doctor is the expert. Can't you just listen to her and call it a day? So that's what she does. Michelle's doctor calls the insurance company and does this thing called a peer-to-peer review. And explained why she wanted it, what my particular circumstances were, the limited options of triple negative. And they said, nope, she's got to fail one more chemotherapy before we approve this. This is called step therapy. It's pretty common. Dr. Mo has dealt with this plenty of times before. Their insurance may say, no, you need to try this drug first before we can approve this more aggressive or this more innovative treatment. So Michelle's doctor is like, my hands are tied. So they go with the insurance-approved chemo. Although my cancer didn't get worse, it didn't get better. So that's considered not failing. And then in October of 2022, I had seizures, went to the hospital, they had found that it had actually moved to the brain. So I had metastasis on my brain. I have the question mark in my mind that, well, if I had been on that drug. The one her doctor prescribed in the first place. It probably, I feel like, wouldn't have gone to my brain since everything else has been shrinking. So why would it have moved to my brain? Next, her doctor recommends radiation. And the radiation that my radiologist wanted was also not approved by insurance. First, they didn't approve radiation at all because I'm stage four. So back and forth between the radiologist and my insurance, and they decided to approve radiation, but they shortchanged it for sessions. For someone facing metastatic breast cancer, a large majority of those patients will require aggressive therapies like chemotherapy. They show up and they realize that their insurance only covers a certain amount and they may have a very, very high bill for drugs that are saving their lives. Since stage four is not curable, it's kind of like they do their cost-benefit analysis, cheaper dead than alive. I mean, that's my interpretation of it. Care denials are on the rise. In 2021, an average of 17% of in-network claims were denied. And that number ranged a lot, depending on the company. And so your life is hanging in limbo, depending on the company you're dealing with. 
Sandra Gunn runs a nonprofit called Leslie's Week. She's seen so many women struggle like this, including Leslie's Week honoree Ramika Mayo. Sandra remembers a powerful speech Ramika gave at one of their events. And she said to everyone in the audience, I've run out of options. My insurance company would not approve the next drug that my oncologist recommended. Now, they wouldn't approve it because it was very expensive. Ramika died because she ran out of options. Even individuals who are insured may have high deductibles and high co-pays and other expenses that they did not account for when they selected their insurance plans. And so it's a really tangled web. We call it financial toxicity. And this web starts at the top. Research is expensive. Developing new drugs is expensive. And so when drugs do hit the market, they've got a hefty price tag. Price tags that are only getting higher year after year. One study estimates that MBC Care costs on average $75,000 per patient per year. Many individual drugs cost over $10,000 a month. And insurance companies don't often cover it all. So at the end of the day, the person who's most affected by these costs is the patient, especially when they have a disease like MBC that requires ongoing treatment. And so the best treatments end up going to those who can afford them. A study done in 2022 revealed that cancer patients without college degrees are more than twice as likely to die from cancer. And many cancer patients end up skipping their treatments to save money. And then there are the other expenses, the stuff your insurance company does not cover, childcare, transportation. I immediately hired a nutritionist when this offer started who specialized in oncology and, you know, all this stuff, it takes money. And I feel it's definitely like money that I don't have. How am I gonna pay the mortgage? What about my car payment? And oh my God, I was laid off because I take too much time off. How could I get another job? That stress takes a mental and physical toll. Studies have shown that stress is linked to tumor growth. Can you imagine feeling like every expense you make is life or death? Or having to sacrifice things like your kid's college education, your car or your home, just so you can stay alive. I have seen financial toxicity affect every single patient, and it creates barriers from screening through diagnosis, through treatment. All of this is a systemic problem. People like Debbie Wasserman Schultz are working hard to pass laws to mitigate cancer costs. Laws that would change step therapy, reduce care denials, and improve overall access to care. But at this point, we need to all work together to fix the problem. We have to get to the point where all of the important stakeholders are at the table, and that includes the advocates, it includes the doctors, it includes the nurses, it includes pharma, it includes the insurers, right? It cannot be an adversarial relationship if we're truly going to move the needle toward health equity. We need all hands on deck. 
but you cannot redesign the system without building a new foundation. After the break, we talk about that foundation and about the next generation. Throughout this series, we talk to people who are working every single day to change the system. But there is one group that's often overlooked, that gets lost in the broader conversation, the kids of breast cancer patients. And if we have any hope of creating a better future, we need to start including the next generation. People like my daughter, Noelle. At the time that you had cancer, I didn't understand like how serious it was. I didn't even really know what cancer was. To me, it was just like I could tell something was off about you and that you were sick. I was diagnosed with breast cancer when Noelle was only three years old. One of her first memories was of me bald, going to doctor appointments, seeing how cancer changed my body, watching me throw up, have fevers, watching my skin darken, my body getting weak, and being in bed a lot. At just three years old, she'd go to the fridge and haul a large gallon of juice up the stairs. It was her way of taking care of me. While her friends played outside, she would put her toys in the bed and play with me. Noelle has been my gift, my why, and my hope for a better future. Today, she works with me at Tiger Lily. She knows the org better than anybody. She's met celebrities, Congress members, presidents, But what is most dear to her heart is meeting other children of other cancer patients, kids who get it, kids like Grace Higley. I am 17 years old and I'm going to be a senior this year. So the prospect of moving out next year is a little scary, but also excited to gain some independence. When Grace was seven years old, her mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. I don't remember a ton. I kind of remember that whole year things started to change a little bit. Like my grandparents from Florida moved to Arkansas to help with us, me and my siblings. And that was weird because it was like, oh, all of a sudden we have other people taking us to school and dance. We had a lot of meals brought to us, but it was just odd because it was like, oh, something must be wrong. But she knew her mom was sick and that meant Being the oldest child, I really had to step up, like help make school lunches and mom was tired all the time. So I would entertain my siblings and make sure that they didn't disturb mom when she was napping. In between all these difficult times, Grace's mom, Samantha, found ways to still have fun with her kids. We were really little, seven and five at the time, and we liked playing beauty shop. When she was shaping her head, she let my sister and I help. And so she let us shave off some of her head into a real life game of beauty shop. I remember after touching her bald head, and that was like probably the moment that I knew she was the strongest person ever because I had always loved my hair. And so I was like, I don't know if I could ever do that, but my mom did it so I could do it. Grace's mom goes through all this cancer treatment until she finally gets a clean scan. But a year later... Being 13 and the oldest daughter, I can kind of eavesdrop and hear what's happening. I remember I did not sleep that night at all. I didn't know exactly what was happening, but I knew it was bad because it was back and it's metastasized. So you're terminal. This is your life now. I tend to be more of an anxious person. I tend to like not want to do anything crazy or like any little thing that 
I have in my own body that makes me nervous, I automatically think the worst of it and start over exaggerating that. Or I get really anxious about leaving my parents, even like when they sleep, it's like, oh, are you breathing? Like, make sure you're breathing. This anxiety is something I know that Noelle relates to. She would ask me all the time, mommy, will your cancer come back? And I would say no. But when she was old enough, Noelle found Dr. Google. And she found out that 30% of those with early stage breast cancer metastasize months to years later. That's when my perspective changed. I definitely became a lot more grateful and like appreciative of you being here. But also, I think it caused a lot more anxiety. If you had like a cough here, sneezing there, like any little thing that was off about like how you were feeling, it was like, is this the cancer coming back? If you would go on a trip for a few days, you remember I would have like full-blown panic attacks, like worrying that something was going to happen. There's a name that you call me. Hypochondriac? <laughs> yes, a hypochondriac. <laughs> but I think that came from you having breast cancer because the symptoms, I feel like at first, could have been a number of things. Like, you know, if you're feeling some kind of way and you're not sure what it is, you go look on Google and it shows like billions of different things. So, Oh my God, you <laughs> love that damn Google. <laughs> is she a hypochondriac? Yes. Did she get a medal for hypochondria? Yes. <laughs> but this young woman will find something that's wrong and she'll figure out what's happening and she'll fix it. And I'd rather have somebody be more proactive with their health. You don't want to be too freaked out about what you know, but you want to be able to use what you know to do better for yourself and your community. And as you can see, you know, her maturity and learning how to cope has come from us talking about her fears. It's come from me saying to her that, you can choose fear or you can choose to live in the present and still embrace your life despite your fears. You can change the world by doing something about what you're afraid of. And so, you know, her activism comes out of her personal experience of being a child of a cancer patient. So as Grace gets older, she channels her energy into her family. Her mom starts homeschooling Grace and her siblings. And Grace is kind of like her mom's assistant especially when she was going through treatments and she would be tired and be like, no, let's let her sleep and I'll teach you your stuff that you need to do. So yeah, I've always really liked teaching my siblings and stuff. But all that anxiety, Grace is bottling it all up. She feels like she needs to stay strong. That really was scary to me, but I couldn't show that it was scary. Where it's like telling my siblings it's gonna be okay even when I may not believe that it's gonna be okay. And the one person she normally talked to she can't. I tell my mom everything, but that aspect of my life was something that I felt like I really need to keep hidden from her because I can't put that on her plate because she can't do anything about, like, I don't know, I just feel like it would make her feel bad. I feel like a lot of kids who have someone close to them who's going through cancer is you feel guilty about how you're feeling. I always felt guilty for saying how I felt about it and for being scared or even bringing up things that I was going through because I was like, in comparison, this is nothing to what you went through. Why should I complain when you almost died? It wasn't until 10 years later, when Noel was 13 years old, that she could find the words to express to me how she truly felt. So much fear and so much anxiety and how much she was truly struggling. As a mother, my heart hurt to think that she had pushed aside her feelings for mine. While I was going through something really hard, so was she. 
So Grace turns 16 years old. Her mom gets invited to Leslie's Week Retreat for Stage 4, which is a retreat for women who are living with stage 4 breast cancer and their families. At the retreat, they do fun family stuff. Hang out by the pool, eat pizza, go to a theme park. And there are support groups for each member of the family. One for patients with MBC, one for their spouses, and one for their kids. And this is the first time Grace meets other teenagers going through the same thing as she is. I don't have to explain anything to you. Things like radiation or metastases, these kids get it. And having to explain like the scientific side of it over and over and over again to every single group is so exhausting. And I hadn't like realized that until I had met someone, especially my own age, who was like, oh yeah, my mom has that too. And I was like, whoa, I don't have to like explain that. It was, it felt really comforting. She also meets other older siblings. It was like, oh, you know exactly what it's like to hide your own feelings from your siblings and be strong for them and feel like, I now have to, like, be a second mother or a second father to my siblings. And I think that was, like, one of the most connecting experiences that I've ever had. All this time that Grace gets to connect with other teens like herself is awesome. And it gives Grace an idea. We need a teens program. And so we developed a program through Leslie's Week called Dreams for Teens that we actually launched this year. And it was really cool. This is important because you feel really safe with these people. You don't feel like you have to hide anything. They know exactly what you're going through. And when you don't have to hide what you're going through and you can be real, you can be free. It feels like no more explaining. It feels like I can be an anxious mess and not have to explain why I am feeling anxious. I know that when my mom passes away, I will have a support group that knows what I'm going through and will be there for me. So I think what I would tell kids is that it's okay to feel how you're feeling and to not feel guilty about it and to feel comfortable talking to whoever has cancer, your mom or your sister, your aunt or whoever it is. Like, it's okay to be able to tell them how you're feeling. That's something that I've really learned. And it's like, I can now tell my mom and my dad and my sister what I'm feeling, but I they don't see me as not strong. Learning that even my sister was having these feelings and my mom has these feelings and even my dad, like just learning that I'm not the one carrying it all. I'm like, oh, okay, we're all having these feelings, but I still think that you guys are really strong and that feeling these feelings makes you stronger even. Noelle and I have been through a lot together and we've had some really, really tough conversations. It's those moments that have made us so much stronger. In many ways, I'm grateful for all the things we've grown through as we've gone through, for how close it's made us. I'm grateful that I've been able to use my challenges as a gift, as an activist, transforming pain into a purpose. And I love this work. I love putting power into the hands of patients. At the same time, though, it's exhausting. I work crazy hours every day to fix a problem that really should not exist. I should not have to think about cancer this much. I should not have to watch so many people I love die from MBC. People who are dying because of the color of their skin or because of their zip code or because they weren't offered the best test, the best care, or a clinical trial. 
If we had a healthcare system that worked, I wouldn't have had to spend the last 17 years of my life living, breathing, sleeping cancer, fighting for those who literally are dying to be heard. If we had equity in healthcare, inclusive clinical trials, better healthcare centers in under-resourced areas, if doctors listened to their patients, no matter their race or their age, and if we stopped being dismissed, delayed, and denied, Tiger Lily wouldn't have to exist. But for now, Tiger Lily is my life. Health equity is my life. Breast cancer advocacy is my life. For now, I am most known as the CEO and founder of Tiger Lily, and I love that I get to create a living legacy. But at the same time, I'm a lot of other things too. I am a mom to the best human being and sweetest soul in the world. I'm an immigrant, survivor of three wars, a healthcare strategist, a speaker, a patient whisperer, a badass, a lover of life, and a unicorn. I think a lot of women living with MBC can relate to this. When you have cancer, it can become all that people see. They stop seeing you for your full self, all the other parts, and they dismiss you. None of us from the panel was on the news screen. Didn't mention metastatic or stage four. I ain't show up, not once. And when you're Black, it's even worse. People start making all these assumptions. You walk into the room and immediately those biases click in. Oh, she's going to be an angry Black woman. And she's probably not educated enough to even know about clinical trials. The system's not only denying people care, but is also trying to deny people of their identities. It's taking away their chance to be all the wonderful things that they can be. But the people living with NBC, the ones we've spoken to, they refuse to be put in a box. And so they're fighting back, forcing the healthcare system to look them in the eyes and to see them, to really see them. Not as cancer patients, but as human beings who refuse to be denied any longer. As humans who deserve a full life, no matter their age, their stage, or skin color. A life where they get to be every single part of themselves. I have always just had sort of a soft spot for animals who can't speak for themselves. Snowboarding is my love language. My mom is adventurous. She likes to hike and swim. I nursed. I love to travel. I love meeting people. I come to you with a financial background. I'm a middle school teacher. I'm also an author. Wrote a children's book. Mom of two kids. I am a father of two adult children. Me, me of three. I'm a mom, a wife. I wear many, many hats. You have a born date and then you have a DASH date, and that DASH is representative of your life. So how do you want to live? I look towards the day when cancer becomes chronic and not a terminal disease, a day when there is equity for all. But for now, we warrior on, and together we're making progress. We're changing the system, but it's not fast enough. I think a lot about what happened with COVID, how quickly everyone rallied for a vaccine. And I wonder what would happen if we treated MBC with that same urgency. 
if everyone had a vested interest in fighting health disparities. We need pharma, doctors, researchers, insurance companies, and policymakers to care. So the question becomes, how? How do we get those people to care? We get people to care when we realize that with every breath we have, we have a privilege. And that privilege is life. With that gift of life comes responsibility to do our part. What affects one of us affects all of us. This means seeing patients as people, as you and as me. Not as stats, not as dollar signs or October donations, but as people. Truly caring means seeing ourselves in their story because their story could be yours too. Denied is a production of Offscript Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Denied is hosted by me, May McCarmo. Our senior producer is Stephanie Cohn. Tamika Adams is our producer. Hannah Beal is our editor. Sound mixing and engineering by Kyle Moore. This episode was sound designed by Stephanie Cohn. Music is from Soundstripe. Special thanks to our nonprofit partners, Sandra Gunn from Leslie's Week and Sonia Negley from Metaviver. <laughs>